Welcome to the Vaccination Station. My name is Dave, and today I'm interviewing Dr. Lawrence Goodridge. Lawrence, great to have you here. Thank you. Great to be here. Let's start by getting to know you. Can you tell me three things about yourself that you think the audience would find interesting? Okay. Uh, first thing is I'm uh, from Canada. Um, second thing is I'm a big Star Trek fan. And the third thing is uh, I'm a scientist and, I, and I'm also a Christian. That is, is really great, especially the last one. So where did you study and what are your qualifications? So I completed most of my education at the University of Guelph, which is in uh, Guelph, Ontario, Canada, which is a city about an hour uh, uh, west of Toronto. So I did my undergraduate degree, my Bachelor of Science degree in microbiology, and I followed that up with a Master of Science degree in, in food science with an emphasis in food microbiology, and finally a PhD um, in, again, in food science with an emphasis in food microbiology. And I um, then went to the United States, the University of Georgia for postdoctoral training in food safety and food microbiology before beginning my professional career as a professor. So your area of specialization is food microbiology? Yes, that's correct. Uh, and I, I particularly study foodborne pathogens like bacteria that make us sick, such as E. coli, salmonella, listeria, and also <clears throat> viruses and parasites that uh, can be found in food that make us sick. Well, that, that helps to, uh, to explain what food <clears throat> microbiology is, which was going to be my next question. Um, so how did you first become interested in science as a career? Well, it actually began in high school. <clears throat> Originally, um, I'd always thought that uh, I was going to go to medical school. Certainly being, uh, my family is originally from Guyana, South America. <clears throat> and being a, <clears throat> a person of color, um, there's typically, uh, and from, a, from what is essentially a patriarchal society, there's always a lot of expectations that parents place on, uh, on their children in terms of uh, education. And, and so for me, there was always this expectation that, you know, I could be a judge or I could be a, a doctor or I could be a dentist or some, some one of those uh, professions that are deemed to be, you know, of high honor um, and also would, would provide a good living. So my family really, um, I think my parents really, uh, and, and the other thing is my parents worked at a university. Um, called McMaster University, which has a world-renowned medical school. My mother was a nurse there and regularly talked with doctors who, who were, uh, you know, on the med school admissions committee. So there was this expectation that I was going to go to that university and to go to medical school. But then in my senior year in, uh, in high school, I, I 
I had the science class and the teacher was, was quite excellent. Um, and that's where I was introduced to microbiology. So studying bacteria and other microorganisms. And I was fascinated by that. And the University of Guelph um, had, has a very good program in, in that field. And they shortly thereafter visited uh, my high school to recruit people to apply to the university. So, so that's how I ended up at, uh, at Guelph and that's how I ended up in science. What advice would you give to someone who is considering a career in science? Um, well, that's a, that's a great question. I think the first thing, um, which is so relevant in, in today's, in the, in the, you know, in the period in which we live in today is that, um, it's important to understand that science, um, and the study of science is, is not a, it's not a predetermined thing. It's, it's an approach to ask questions in a certain way and, and, and answer those questions. So, the first thing I'd say is that people have to um, try to be as unbiased as possible. Um, we certainly live in this time now where um, everything is confirmation bias. Um, our social media feeds are tailored so that it, <clears throat> they deliver information that is deemed to be what we want, only what we want to see, as opposed to, you know, uh, contrasting views. And um, <clears throat> people tend to. Uh, you know, look only for uh, proof of what they've already decided is the case. Um, in science, that that can't happen. Um, we start, we ask a, a question, also known as a hypothesis, um, or we ask a question, we generate a hypothesis, to, which is what we think may happen, but we don't know that for sure. We then embark on a number of of, of uh, experiments to, to answer that. We analyze the data and whatever the answer is, is whatever the answer is, regardless of whether we thought that would be the answer. So, so the first thing is that one has to be unbiased. And unfortunately, <clears throat> as with all other parts of society, we, um, we sometimes see that scientists themselves are not, are, uh, um, are biased. Um, and, and that has had the unfortunate consequence of, of bringing this general field of science into disrepute among the general public. So tell me about your most recent research. What was it and what are the real life applications? So uh, I, uh, as I've said, I conduct research on bacterial foodborne pathogens like E. coli and salmonella and listeria. And I uh, received a, a very large grant, uh, $10 million um, from uh, a funding organization in Canada to, uh, to study salmonella. Salmonella is a bacteria that causes approximately 80 million Ill illnesses each year around the world due to contaminated food. But we we, there's many different types of salmonella, um, and we don't have a very good understanding on how <clears throat> salmonella can cause um, this illness in, in all of these different foods. It contaminates a whole bunch of different foods, including foods that we don't normally associate uh, with bacteria, like flour and chocolate. Um, these are dry foods that, in, where in theory, um, such bacteria should not 
be able to survive and yet we see these outbreaks so the research was to use a, a series of approaches that really study the genetic makeup of the of the bacteria called genomics and we we combine that with studies where we infected uh, various organisms with the salmonella to study how they replicate and grow and and to gain a better understanding of how they cause disease. And then we took that information and we developed solutions to uh, try to stop those diseases. Um, so these solutions are uh, biological control approaches to reduce the presence of salmonella in foods. We also developed better ways to detect them and faster ways to detect them in food. And finally, we developed better ways to track them during outbreaks of illnesses so that we can remove the contaminated food from grocery stores uh, so that people, um, less people become sick. In October this year, you contributed an article to an Australian academic commentary site called The Conversation. And in that article, you discussed the role of sewage surveillance in the fight against diseases. What is sewage surveillance? Why is it important? And how does it contribute to the fields of science and medicine? So a big problem that we have when we're studying diseases is that the only way we know that people are sick is if somebody essentially notifies a public health official. So by that, I mean, you know, we're talking about foodborne illnesses, so let's, let's use that as an example, but it can work for any other disease, such as COVID-19 or the flu or, or any other disease. Uh, if somebody is sick, the only way that we'll know that somebody's actually sick is that they have to go to their doctor or a hospital or uh, some other healthcare professional. But the problem is with foodborne diseases, most people will not go to a hospital. Uh, these diseases uh, tend to be short duration for most people, maybe 24 to 48 hours, maybe a bit longer, depending on, on the, the organism that's causing the disease. Most people stay at home in bed and never go. So therefore, the, the um, healthcare professionals don't know about that person. Even if they did go to the hospital, the, uh, the doctor has to take a sample, typically a stool sample. And this is where we get into, you know, sewage monitoring. Foodborne diseases are diseases that attack the gastrointestinal tract. So a common symptom is diarrhea, which means that essentially the bacteria is shed in the feces. And that happens because the bacteria, this is one way that the bacteria can actually disseminate itself. Uh, it's, it's shed in, in the feces into the environment. And, and that is a great way for, for microorganisms to disseminate themselves, certainly in developing countries where we have poor sanitation. Um, that can be spread. But even in developed countries like Australia or Canada or the United States, um, if people, you know, don't wash their hands properly after going to the bathroom and handle food, then they can be spread. The stool sample has to be tested to yield the agent. Many doctors, even if people go to the hospital, will not take a stool sample. They'll just say, well, you have some kind of foodborne illness, go home, drink some fluids, you'll be better, you'll be fine. Uh, even if they do take a stool sample, in some cases, when they when this, the sample is tested, uh, it may not yield the agent causing the disease. There's many reasons for that. The fact, first of all, no test is 100% accurate. 
Secondly, it depends on when the person, you know, went to the doctor and, and whether the bacteria is in their stool or not. If the test does yield the agent, then it, that result has to be reported to public health officials. And sometimes that doesn't happen uh, because of staff shortages or other in more pressing things such as COVID-19, for example. Um, you know, foodborne diseases are important, but COVID-19 is a global pandemic. Resources are pulled over to that side, so, so it might not be reported. So we know that, for example, for every um, person that is known to have a foodborne illness in an outbreak, there are approximately 25 to 30 people who are sick that healthcare officials don't know about. And in the in terms of COVID-19, the same thing applies. Um, we know that for every person that we know that's sick, there are many people who, are, who we don't know that are sick. Um, that could be people who have symptoms, but assume it's the cold, the symptoms could be mild. So they, you know, they stay home and they recover. It could be people who don't even know that they're sick, the so-called asymptomatic uh, people. So, so all of this means that we can't. We we are very reactionary to outbreaks. That is, we have to wait till a sufficient number of people are sick, and that has been reported before we do anything, which is is actually, you know, quite an archaic way of doing things uh, because by that time there's a lot of people that are sick. Um, and in a disease such as COVID-19, which is quite infectious, by the time we know, the disease may be out of control, and we've certainly seen that all over the world. So sewage monitoring um, essentially can solve that by instead of waiting you know, for people to, to go to the hospital, so-called passive surveillance, we can actually conduct active surveillance. And that is by monitoring the sewage because um, foodborne pathogens are shed in feces, as I've said. Uh, the virus, SARS-CoV-2, that causes COVID-19, also shed in feces. Other organisms, like influenza, which causes the flu, same thing, shed in, in, in feces. We can actually monitor collectively, at a population level, the, uh, the presence of an infectious agent by monitoring sewage uh, from, for example, a wastewater treatment plant that might treat sewage from a part of a city or even an entire city, depending on the population. And, and so in doing that continuously, um, then we, we would look for, you know, signals where whatever agent we're looking for may increase in, in over what would be a normal background level. Or maybe we're looking for emerging pathogens, which we've never seen before. Uh, and if we suddenly see that, then we know that this is some, some new disease. So that's how sewage monitoring can uh, can help us to um, conduct surveillance for diseases. The other thing about sewage monitoring is that most people will shed the pathogen in their stool anywhere from a week to 10 days before they actually show symptoms. And this is quite consistent regardless of the pathogen. So, so this allows us an early warning system as well, um, where we can begin to take steps to separate or quarantine those people to stop the spread of disease. That is really fascinating, and it's a really comprehensive answer too, so thank you for that. And from what you've told me, it sounds like your research is of great importance and, and certainly a great help to epidemiologists who track the spread of and the presence of diseases throughout populations and also use data to make predictions about future pandemics and, and where the next 
outbreak might be and how we can best combat it. Is that a fair summary? Absolutely. And, and sewage surveillance has really taken off across the world um, in, in, in response to COVID-19. So I think that um, one of the lasting legacies of this pandemic, at least what I hope is, is a lasting legacy, is that there'll be some kind of global sewage surveillance network um, where you know countries will be doing this and, and sharing the data openly. And then that data can be used to coordinate responses uh, so that we can respond much faster and much more in a much more appropriate way uh, to, to future pandemics than, than what has happened with the current one. Do we know if this disease can be spread through contaminated water or, or, or food or other similar substances? I mean, what's its, its life expectancy outside a host? Yeah, so that's a great question. And uh, early on, when it was discovered that people were shedding the, uh, the virus in their feces, in their stool, it was postulated that people could become contaminated via the fecal oral route. So, so that what that means is that if people are sh- shedding their stool, they don't wash their hands, they could then, and they touch their mouth, they could actually reintroduce it or reintroduce it or introduce it to other people. The other reason why it was thought that that could happen was because, so the way viruses work, COVID-19 is caused by a virus. And the way all viruses work is they attach to specific receptors on cells inside of our bodies. And uh, in the case of uh, SARS-CoV-2, which causes COVID-19, that receptor is called ACE2. So any cell in our body that has an ACE2 receptor, the virus can bind to an infect. And in our gastrointestinal tract, um, there are cells that have this receptor. So it was thought that it's potentially possible for people to get sick by the ingesting the virus. And so that led to questions about, well, is it foodborne? Um, and certainly some studies from China seem to suggest that they found it on food. And so there was a lot of questions about that. So far, the evidence suggests that one cannot get it from food. And there's several reasons for that. First of all, even if the virus is on food, you'd ask the question about, well, do we know, you know how long the virus survives? So there, there were some studies that have been done not on food. We, we actually don't have a good idea of how long it survives on food. And in my opinion, those are uh, some studies that need to be done. But others have done studies to sh- show uh, how long the virus survives on various materials like plastic and metal and cardboard. Cardboard in particular is relevant to this question because cardboard is used as a food container uh, for takeout food, for example. Um, and the results showed that uh, you know, um, anywhere from 24 hours to 72 hours, um, one could find the virus. Although those studies did not look for live virus, uh, it, they, they just used a method to actually detect whether the virus was, was, was there or not, but couldn't tell whether it was alive or not. So, so that's one caveat. Um, but, you know, other reasons why it's unlikely that food is a vehicle for dissemination is the fact that the virus is actually not hardy at all. Um, it, it's, it's actually, it's an envelope virus. That means there's an envelope around its, its outside, the outside of it. And the envelope is easily, uh, very easily susceptible to things like low pH. So our stomach acid would easily inactivate it. Um, very low heat 
is, is uh, would also easily inactivate it. Uh, common household cleaners easily inactivate it. Um, so it's unlikely that food access a vehicle and, and major food agencies, governmental food agencies in various countries around the world have all consistently said they've seen no evidence that it's spread by food. Well, that, that's very reassuring, certainly. Uh, what about domestic animals? Around the start of the pandemic, there were lots of questions about whether or not uh, dogs and, and cats might be able to carry the disease and spread it, even if it didn't actually work on them, so to speak. So people were saying, well, what if my dog is an asymptomatic carrier and my dog licks my face and, and uh, or my cat licks my mouth or what that kind of thing? What do we know about its potential to spread from domestic animals to humans? Yeah, that's another great question. So certainly we've seen uh, some documented cases of domesticated animals having, having this virus in the US, in Canada, and in, in, in China, I believe. And so certainly the possibility exists that if a domestic animal has the virus, it can be spread to humans. You know, those cases tend to be low or few. Um, we, we haven't seen a, a large number of, uh, of cases. I have a colleague here at, at uh, the University of Guelph who's actively surveilling that and, and has not seen, um, you know, really much evidence. Uh, um, I think there was one case in Canada um, so far uh, where a domestic animal has it. However, because of the possibility that, that could happen, um, you know, it's advised that if you, just as, as we're advised to physically distance with people, it's advised that we physically distance with, with domestic pets. So for example, if you're walking and you see somebody who has a dog, um, don't go up and, and pet the dog or, or play with the dog, uh, physically distance uh, to, to reduce the, the risk of, uh, of transmission. And then, and then we've seen where we have seen animals that, that seem to uh, have a high propensity for, for being infected with the virus is mink. And um, we've seen several outbreaks uh, on mink farms um, in Canada and elsewhere. Let's move on then to your project, the one that you've just received a funding grant for. When I was uh, reading about it online, I noted that it combines wastewater management, uh, sorry, wastewater monitoring and social media technologies. Well, I wasn't quite sure what that meant. So could you explain the project in simple terms for the audience and, and for myself, please? Sure. So, so I received, recently received a, a, a large project, again, funded by a governmental research agency to um, develop the, the type of active surveillance system that we talked about earlier uh, based around sewage. So uh, this is, uh, well, when we, when we wrote the, the, uh, the pr proposal, the project proposal, it was exclusively centered around foodborne pathogens. Um, since this pandemic has come out, um, because the approach can be used to monitor any pathogen really um, that's found in sewage, it's, it's, we've expanded to include uh, SARS-CoV-2. Um, that causes COVID-19. So basically the project is to develop a, develop sentinel sites around Canada where, so these would be cities, selected cities that are representative of, of uh, 
cities across Canada, where we would monitor uh, the sewage from a wastewater treatment plant or wastewater treatment plants in those cities um, for the presence of uh, several pathogens. I think there's seven or eight. These are foodborne pathogens plus SARS-CoV-2 that are um, commonly um, monitored by uh, food agencies in Canada and elsewhere. So, so people may not know, but you know, foods are commonly tested um, in developing, or sorry, in developed countries um, like Australia, New Zealand, uh, you know, European countries, North American countries. Um, foods are regularly surveilled for the presence of pathogens, so that we can understand which foods are at highest risk and and figure out how to con uh, how to uh, control the pathogens in those foods. And then the people who get sick or, and go to the hospital are also uh, uh, monitored for, for these pathogens. So we, based on that, th this list, we've chosen these pathogens to monitor in sewage. So we would uh, develop a monitoring system where we would every, twice a week in these Sentinel cities collect sewage and test the sewage to see what levels of these pathogens are present. Um, the pathogens are always present. Uh, because at any given time, you know, a few people may be sick in a given city. So we have to develop a baseline. And then what we would do is look for increases above that baseline, which might indicate an outbreak. So one issue with sewage monitoring, though, is that it can only tell you on a population level that, you know, there are people who, who are infected. It can't tell you who those people actually are. So if we think about Sydney, Australia, for example, and we were doing uh, sewage monitoring, we could say, oh, well, in Sydney, it looks like there are, there's an outbreak of salmonella because people, we're seeing higher levels of salmonella in the sewage than we would normally see. But in order to stop the outbreak, we actually have to know who those people are because then we have to go and find them. We have to interview them. We have to ask them what they've eaten in an attempt to find out what the contaminated food is so that we can pull it out of circulation at retail stores and so forth. So that's where social media monitoring comes in. You know, I said earlier that people don't go to the hospital when they might have a foodborne illness, but they certainly like to talk about it on social media, at least in North America. And so in the USA, public health agencies and, and units have actually been using what's called social media syndromic surveillance for quite some time now, for about seven or eight years, where they, they actually would, in a, in, in a geographical area, they would look at all social media posts um, Twitter um, seems to be a, a main, a good source. Um, and they would look for keywords that are uh, aligned with symptoms that are typical of foodborne illness, like diarrhea and vomiting and, you know, and derivatives of that. Uh, and then they have to parse through that data because just because somebody has diarrhea doesn't necessarily mean that they have a foodborne illness. There's lots of other reasons why one could have diarrhea. Um, but what it does is it allows the public health officials to now be in contact uh, with people who have described that. So if we combine, you know, the social media syndromic surveillance with sewage surveillance um, in, a, in a given city like Sydney, so we see in the sewage, we see an increase in salmonella or E. coli or, or whatever the case may be. And then we also see people talking, an increase in people talking about symptoms of, that would be consistent with those diseases that is, it provides some more proof that there likely is an outbreak and also then allows us to come in contact with those people um, where we could then interview them and ask them what foods they've eaten all in an attempt to stop 
the outbreak uh, much more quickly than we, we currently can. I, I neglected to mention when we were talking about this earlier that because people, you know, don't go to the hospital and so forth, it often takes anywhere between three and five weeks after someone ingests a contaminated food or a number of people ingest a contaminated food before public health officials know there's an outbreak. And so that's five, up, potentially up to five weeks of people uh, eating that contaminated food. If we if we're if we develop this active surveillance approach, we might know within three days or a week that there's an outbreak, and and therefore then can take steps to to really stop that, which would mean much less people would would be sick. Well, I can see then the the tremendous potential that that this project has to streamline the process to to accelerate the discovery of of pathogens in in wastewater and therefore sort of begin to track it through communities. And I can see epidemiologists really jumping at this as a, uh, an essential and vital tool in, uh, in their field as well. So that sounds really exciting. Yes. And then, and while we're on, sorry, I was, I was sorry, just about on. to say, and, and your point about epidemiologists, absolutely. And in fact, we are, this project, uh, in this project, we're working in collaboration with the public health agency of Canada. And, and they're epidemiologists. So, so absolutely, they need to play an integral role in, in uh, development of, of any new surveillance system. So let's talk about research funding. In your case, you've received uh, a $10 million grant uh, for, for your project. The average person on the street, uh, including myself, doesn't really know much about scientific funding, uh, how it works, you know, where the money comes from and, and how conflicts of interest are avoided nor do they know how the money is spent or what, or what it's for. So if I said to someone, oh, <clears throat> there's a guy in Canada who's just been given $10 million to carry out a project um, that involves sewage surveillance, tracking pathogens through, uh, through, the, through the water in, in sewage systems and linking this up with a, a pre-existing social media tracking network. And it's, it's really exciting. I've been talking to him about it and it sounds really great. Their first question to me is going to be, well, uh, if this guy already works for a university or, or some other institution, why does he need extra money? Isn't he being paid already? And, and secondly, they're going to say, well, what does he need $10 million for? Can't he just you know, go to a wastewater treatment facility, dip a few test tubes in, uh, in the water, go back to the lab and look at it under the microscope, Wes? What's the money being spent on? So um, if you could unpack some of that for, I know that's a horrible, horrible and potentially insulting oversimplification, but this is what, what people do say. So if, if you could just uh, unpack that for us, that'd be great. Okay. So I'm going to try to answer the question as, generally as possible because different countries have different, uh, there's the slight modifications um, to, to what I'm gonna say. And I'll, I'll try to highlight those when I get to them. So generally, yes, yeah, so I'm a professor at the university. My salary is paid by the university and that money for my salary comes from various sources, including the government, uh, student tuition and so on. So um, when I obtain research money, uh, research funding, it's not to pay my salary. 
This is the first uh, difference though in different places, like in the United States, for example, some researchers are allowed to augment their salary with a certain percentage of, uh, of research funding. And in some cases, some researchers have to bring in their entire salary uh, from research funding. But here in Canada, my salary is 100% paid for by, by the university and they obtain money to do that from various sources like the government and, and tuition and so forth. So what do I use that money for? Well, um, ex, ex, you know, conducting research is very, ex, is very, can be very expensive. Um, I need to, um, for example, order scientific supplies uh, to do the research. So the money goes to that. As a professor, I actually don't con conduct the research. I manage my research lab. I, I'm the one that writes, for example, the research grants to get funding when we have a project I have to, I'm responsible for writing research and financial reports of how, so research uh, reports of the progress of, uh, of the project, but financial reports also, which uh, indicate how we're using the money because I just can't use the money how I want. I'm also responsible for publishing the results of the, uh, of the the science in, in, in what are called peer-reviewed journals. These are journals that are reviewed by other scientists, where the results are reviewed by other scientists before it's published. So I'm, I'm actually a, a, essentially a, a lab manager of sorts. Um, I also have to teach and, and I have other responsibilities. So all this means that I don't do the research. So I have to employ people to do the research. So they could be students. Um, we talked about how I went to graduate school and I did a master of science and a, and, a, and a PhD. During those, when I was at the school, I worked on research projects um, and I was paid to do so as a graduate student. Um, so I, I, I do the same thing. I would employ students who are doing graduate studies uh, and this would be their project on which they would obtain their masters of science or, or, or a PhD degree. Or I might employ a technician or a postdoctoral fellow uh, to do the research. Um, a big part of research is dissemination of the results. So I already said that, you know, uh, I have to publish the results. Well, that costs money um, to publish. Also, another way to spread the results is to go to conferences. These could be national or international conferences and disseminate the results. So that costs money for airfare and hotel and uh, conference registration and, and so forth. So, so this is where all the, the money comes. Now, I've received large grants, $10 million for my salmonella project, $6.5 million for, for the sewage project. All that money does not come directly to me. It actually, uh, in fact, no money comes directly to a professor. Uh, it always goes to the university, um, and then they develop trust funds and so forth, and, 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 and that money is administered. But additionally, I, these, re, these projects I do are often in, done in collaboration with other groups, other professors and so forth. So for example, my $10 million grant for Salmonella, I think there were 20 other professors from you know, 10 or 12 other universities. So the money is spread across those professors. And then um, that funding is for four years. So if you actually start to do the math, um, the $10 million might seem like a lot, but it's actually not that much. Um, um, another thing is that universities will typically take a portion of that money um, to help with 
um, you know, keeping the doors open, um, hydro and lights. And, you know, there's a lot of people, a lot of staff at the university that are not professors. There's administrative staff and so forth um, that have to be paid. So, um, you know, universities are chronically underfunded. So, um, so, so they'll take some of that money. So, so that's where all of the money goes to. And, 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 and then a kind of a related aspect um, is who, who provides that money. So I know there's misconceptions in the general public that, you know, the only, aid, the only place that, that, that research should get money from is from companies. And so there's this idea that if therefore a company's funding research, therefore we can be manipulated um, into, uh, they're basically paying um, for the research. So we, we essentially become a um, employee of that company and basically we have to make sure that our results agree with what they want or else, you know, we're not going to get the money. So, so I just want to address that. So certainly um, companies can and do fund research. You know, various companies can and do fund research, but by and large, the majority of, of, of research funding comes from government agencies, um, regardless of what country you're in. So in Canada, there's a number of government agencies. So these are agencies, federal agencies that the Canadian government gives money to, and then those agencies have grant competitions and they will fund projects. And, and, and there's strict guidelines with how we can use that money and we have to report, as I've said. In the case when companies fund research, um, there are, the first thing that happens is uh, there has to be a research agreement, which is heavily scrutinized by lawyers um, at the university to make sure that the research is ethical um, and to make sure that, you know, negative things can't happen. For example, companies can't say, well, we expect this result. Or, or so forth. Certainly, we've seen some cases of that happen. Um, and I think this is where the public seizes on. And, and based on that, have formed this, this, you know, idea that that's how all research goes and so forth. But those, I, those cases where companies have acted unscrupulously and unethically are, are very uh, rare uh, when one considers all of the research that goes on on a day-to-day -day basis. And, uh, and and where the funding comes from. That is really terrific, and and thank you so much because that's a tremendous insight into a process that most of us who are outside the fields of of science and medicine have no knowledge of, very little comprehension of, and and wouldn't even know where to go to find out about. So if, if I can summarize your main points, firstly, money that's allocated for research isn't simply paid to you, it's paid to the university and it's issued on an as needed basis and you need to make applications for that research, uh, for that research money and show how it's, it's being spent. Secondly, you are not, it's it's not a case of just one guy in a lab doing the research by himself. You are a, a project manager, really. And you 
oversee a larger team of people. You, it's necessary to delegate a great deal of this work to other experts or maybe sort of graduate students who are up and coming in the, in the field as part of their work experience. So you're actually managing a much wider team of people and the funding also has to cover their expenses and, and their salaries. There's also the issue of scientific equipment, which as we all know can be excruciatingly expensive, especially in high, highly specialised fields. Um, I don't know if you use electron microscopes, for example, in, in your field. But I can imagine those things don't come too cheap. Right. And, and, and on that note, you know, um, yeah, so that's a great point. You know, a big piece of equipment like electron microscopes are, they're purchased by the university. Um, so I wouldn't have to purchase them. However, um, they require a lot of maintenance. So there's maintenance fees. Uh, so every time I use an electron microscope, I have to pay you know, a fee or any other piece of equipment that's really expensive is a fee because invariably the equipment will break down and they have to be paid and some, or they have to be repaired and someone has to cover that. So, so that's a great point that I neglected to mention. Um, and that's another place where um, research money from projects goes to. And then, of course, this research doesn't just happen overnight or in a few weeks. It, it can last for many months, even years, in, in your case, maybe four years plus. And as you say, that's a long time to be working with a large team of people on a fairly substantial project with highly expensive machinery and, and equipment and many other associated costs over time that really starts to add up very fast and then finally you you mentioned that of course the university is entitled to to keep some of that money for itself for uh, for ongoing costs of the university's own management and and running expenses and that kind of thing which is perfectly reasonable so when seen in the context of of the complexity and the scale of a research project like this even 10 million dollars over four years does not seem terribly unreasonable after all and the process is a great deal more complex than the average person assumes you made very good points about sources of funding and conflict of interest as well which which anticipated a couple of questions i was going to ask in a minute the use of ethics boards to to ensure that the money has been allocated justifiably, that the results have not been biased by the receipt of money from interested parties, the, the legal uh, checks and balances to ensure that nothing untoward has occurred. All of these things are a big part of the process. And again, they will soak up a lot of the, the funding in, involved. So I can see where that goes. What about research conducted in the industries themselves, like for pharmaceutical industry? Say, for example, we've got a, a company that produces a drug and it does its own research. And then that drug enters the market, is cleared by the FDA, for example, and seems to be very effective. And then over time, say within 12 months, maybe 18 months, problems arise and then a subsequent investigation, maybe the government launches an independent inquiry, a subsequent investigation shows that some of that research by the company was either fabricated or, or, or mishandled 
or maybe some of the negative results were played down or slightly skewed to make them less significant than they actually were. I'm thinking, for example, of the Vioxx scandal. Um, can you just give me your, your views on that? Because this is where a lot of people will say, how can we trust the pharmaceutical industry to do its own research when that research is paying, ultimately going to be paying its, its bills and producing a product which is going to be highly profitable for the company? Yeah, so great, great points. And, 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 you know, that question is extremely valid. And we've seen, unfortunately, uh, we've seen a number of such scandals. Um, when companies, um, for-profit companies, um, are doing their own research that's in-house, um, it's, it's behind a wall. So, you know, I guess the one word that I'm going to use, because it really comes down to anything that we talk about, really at the end of the day, regardless of what we talk about here, the word is trust. At some point, whether we acknowledge it or not, we have to, we, we, we have to trust that what an entity says they're doing is actually what they're doing. And we're talking about science, but it's, it could be anything, you know? We trust, when we get into our cars every day and we drive, we trust that the, the, the automotive company built a car and they built it properly, that they didn't cut corners, that the car is designed in such a way that if we were to enter an accident, into an accident, you know, it's designed to, to keep us as safe as possible. Same with airplanes or anything else. And, 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 and from time to time, we see that that trust is, uh, has, you know, been taken advantage of. And so it's the same with, with drug companies where we see, you know, from time to time, a company will, will play with the results, you know, because of this need to fulfill shareholders uh, and, and, and so forth. And, you know, you have a drug that you've invested millions, maybe billions of dollars into. And, 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 uh, and, and so, uh, you know, there, there certainly can be pressure that uh, that drug can't fail. So if you if you if you do research and you see that the results are, you know, negative, maybe there's there, you know there could be pressure to uh, to kind of bury those results. And unfortunately, we've seen that from time to time. However, again, I would say that those results that those situations are relatively rare when one considers that all of the drugs, vaccines, treatments that are be in development, that have been developed, that have been used for many years that are in fact safe. And um, I think we, we have to remember that. You know, um, there's many reasons why, you know, you mentioned, well, let's say a drug is approved by the FDA or whatever agency. And then 18 months later, we start to see, uh, you know, deleterious effects uh, in people. Well, that can happen because a company hid data but it can also happen innocently. You know, when drugs are developed, every attempt is made to um, ensure that that drug is safe. But, and, and that's done through what are called clinical trials where um, numbers of people are given the drug and they're monitored and, and there's uh, phases of clinical trials and, and so forth. But even, the, and, and, and so a good, a well-designed clinical trial will include people from all kinds of backgrounds um, socioeconomic background, different socioeconomic backgrounds, different ethnicity, 
different age groups, all of that, because it's known that those can, those variables can all lead to differences in how people might react to the drug. So, um, so attempts are made to, to do that. But even then, you know, you know, we can't replicate every situation that happens. So when the drug then goes on to general population, you may see unintended, you know, side effects. Uh, and when that happens, the drug, if, if the side effects are serious enough, uh, the drug use can be suspended. But yes, uh, certainly, unfortunately, we've seen uh, situations by companies where, you know, there tends to be a um, perception that the company is just trying to do something that is, uh, you know, unethical, or they may actually be doing things that are un unethical. So one example that comes to mind is, is the current COVID-19 vaccine development. And, you know, in the news recently, um, so there's many companies that have developed vaccines. Um, and one vaccine in particular, the AstraZeneca um, vaccine developed by Oxford in collaboration with Oxford University has received a lot of press because uh, the data that was, the early data that was reported, um, there seemed, there were certainly a scientists were asking a lot of questions about that data because the way they presented that data and reported that data is certainly, would certainly not be, it's certainly not the norm for how um, such data is reported. And, and some of the things that were done during the clinical trials, which is uh, when the safety is assessed, uh, you know, the changing uh, experimental process uh, when that was not the original plan. You know, these things, in the end, the vaccine may end up being quite efficacious. I think uh, there's still, you know, there's still the scientific community is still waiting to see the data. But even so, it's, it tends to erode public confidence because there's, it seems like there's questions regarding how the, uh, the, the company is, is uh, doing these trials. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad you raised that because this, of course, is a, a big hot topic coming up right now, especially with the anti-vax community raising all kinds of, of you know, their usual objections. A lot of people obviously are very worried about the fact that in the US, for example, these vaccine manufacturers have been given legal indemnity and people are saying, oh, well, that means if anything goes wrong with the vaccine, they have, you know, there's no, there's no legal standing to bring a, a case against them for, uh, for any kind of compensation. And with that kind of reassurance backing them, there's very little incentive for these companies to actually get it right or to make sure that the, the vaccine is is safe and effective. They, they don't have to worry about it. What people are forgetting, of course, though, is that the vaccine is a product, a commercial product, and it is not in the interests of a pharmaceutical company to produce a commercial product at a time when it is most needed that does not work effectively, especially when there are so many other companies vying for market share on that very same product. So it would make no sense, for example, for Pfizer to cut corners or, or not worry about safety when it comes to the vaccine. In fact, it's those very market forces that make it more, uh, even more important for Pfizer to get their vaccine right and ensure that they have a market-leading vaccine that it is that is truly effective and reliable and safe. That will therefore make them uh, a huge amount of money because if obviously in in six months, twelve months, eighteen months time, it proves that their vaccine is is not effective or as safe as as they said, they're in all kinds of trouble. They could 
lose a substantial amount of market share. Their share price will will tank. Their product will have to be recalled. And even though there's no no uh, way of people to gain compensation for this, the fallout for the company economically would be utterly disastrous. And that's not to mention the the PR management that would be required in in the ensuing blowback from the public. So people forget that the very same market forces which drive corporations to produce these pharmaceuticals also to some extent is known it's not perfect but to some extent and particularly in the case of this pandemic act as a pretty good break by themselves on any attempts at malfeasance or cutting corners or or kind of um lazier approach to the data it just doesn't make economic sense uh, yes exactly and and there's other checks and balances Yes, the data, you know, the private companies are developing these drugs, vaccines, treatments, et cetera. But the data still should be published. So, so for example, with respect to the vaccines that are being developed for COVID-19, the data is, is, is published and is there for all. Anybody who really wants to look at it uh, can look at it in, in, in scientific journals. It's there. So the scientific, the, the scientific community at large can can look at that data and has looked at that data uh, and can comment on it. And, 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 and so this is, for example, back to AstraZeneca and Oxford and their vaccine, this is how some of the concerns were raised by the scientific community looking at the data and said, well, you know, the way that you're, you're reporting this data is, is not typically how it would be done. We have some concerns. And you can see that, you know, for example, where other vaccines uh, such as um, the Pfizer BioNTech vaccine, the Moderna vaccine have been have been already approved by numerous countries. That vaccine, um, I think, has only been approved by the UK currently. So you know, so there's some checks and balances. The other thing is that you know, I, I think, um, as I said before, there's just a lot of suspicion by the, the general uh, public. But we have to, you know, we have to really have these discussions and base them on fact. One question that people always ask me is, well, if there were, so now that we're rolling out these vaccines, if there were side effects, do you really think that we would hear about them? You know, wouldn't they cover them up? And to which I say, well, let's look at the facts. The Pfizer BioNTech vaccine was first used in the UK and immediately upon uh, rollout, we, there were reports that uh, I think there were two people um, that had allergic reactions. So that was reported, and and that was then used by other you know governments and other countries to say, okay, well, people with with severe allergies uh, should not take this vaccine. So I'm quite confident that you know side effects will be reported. Um, we've seen that um, already. That there's no there's no conspiracy that some global conspiracy that you know uh, uh, these companies are are putting out substandard, uh, you know, drugs and vaccines, as you've said, um, that would be um, decidedly not in, 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 in the long-term interests of, of, of a country, of a company. So, um, so I really think we, we really have to, to look at, at what's been happening and, and, and look at the facts. We've certainly seen since this pandemic, there have been several drug trials that have failed. Um, hydroxychloroquine is a, is a great one. Um, where it was thought that this would work that, that, and it failed. So I think, you know, it, again, it comes back to trust. I certainly have trust that the, uh, you know, the majority 
of, uh, of companies and healthcare professionals are all working in concert to, to, to reduce this disease. Yes, there are certainly a few bad players, just like they are, there are in any industry, uh, but we should not elevate those few bad players and, and say that that is indicative of the industry as a whole. That's great. And thank you so much for your time, Lawrence. This has been an extremely informative and and interesting interview. In closing, I just want to ask if people want to follow your work, where can they find you online? Uh, so I, um, my Twitter handle is at SafeFoodCanuck. Um, so, you know, that's primarily where I'm online at the moment. Um, I am developing a, a, a website where I, I will... Uh, you know, try to um, place my more interesting uh, findings and and communicate that in a way that the general public can understand. But that's that's still in development. So for right now, um, Safe Food Canuck on Twitter would be the best way to uh, to follow what I do. That's great. Thank you again for your time, Lawrence. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you very much. 